The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. We continue our study of the third verse of the sixth chapter of Romans. We are baptized into Jesus Christ. We are speaking, of course, as we have seen, of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It is the great identifying work of the Holy Spirit which places a believer in Christ. And that entrance into him is not an entrance into an organization, but into the very life of Christ himself. And the work does not begin in time, but back in eternity, and carries on into the future eternity. Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the radio outreach which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we will be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled Circumcision and Growth. If you believe in Christ, you receive the benefits of His atoning blood which He shed on the cross for your sins. But do you realize that you also receive the benefits of the blood He shed when He was eight days old? The truth of our identification with Christ in His circumcision is often neglected or obscured, but it is of great importance in the life of the believer. What significance does the circumcision of Jesus have in your life? The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, Romans chapter six and verse three. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, Circumcision and Growth. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We thank thee that thou hast accounted us as being joined to Christ, and that thou dost see us perfect in him. May we grow in thy truth, is our constant prayer. Cleanse us from every stain of sin through the finished work of the Savior, and maintain us in our high position in him, that we may live holy lives before thee in all well-pleasing. We ask it in the name and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We have seen that we have been baptized into our being eternally chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, and that we were baptized into his own virgin birth. All of this was the work of the Holy Spirit. We now see that we are baptized into the first shedding of Christ's blood, that which was shed when he was circumcised at the age of eight days, identified into him in his circumcision. We read in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9 to 11, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, 
in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. This truth of our identification with him in circumcision is often neglected and obscured, but it is of great importance in the life of the believer. It is definitely stated to be a part of the baptism of the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, a part of the one baptism. And all Christians should understand that whatever mode of water baptism they practice, they must see in it a symbol of our complete identification with Christ, a symbol of our death, burial, and resurrection with him, yes, but also of our circumcision in him. The rite of circumcision is a peculiar thing, but not without great spiritual teaching and illumination. It was to Abraham that God first made known the practice, and it was then clearly stated that it was to be a token of the covenant between God and Abraham. No member of a family of which the males were not circumcised might partake of the Passover of God. Even from the early history of the children of Israel, there is a definite mention of this rite or practice in a spiritual sense, as well as the physical. We are not astonished, however, that the people lost sight of the spiritual by looking only at the carnal ordinance. The natural man, we're told, receiveth not the things of the Spirit, and even in the more enlightened days of the Lord Jesus himself, men constantly lowered their eyes to things instead of lifting them to the invisible and the spiritual. When Jesus spoke of raising the temple in three days, they thought of stones and of masonry. When Nicodemus heard of the new birth, he asked a question about obstetrics. And when he took the bread of the communion, saying, This is my body, there have been those who thought that the bread became his body. Have you learned to look to the spiritual and to expect the supernatural? When shall we learn to cease from man? in whose nostrils there can never be more than one breath at a time, and come to him, the holy breath, the Holy Spirit, who makes us alive forevermore, and who gives to us to discern spiritually the things of the Spirit. Throughout the prophets, the great exhortations to holiness were frequently bound up with a reference to circumcised hearts. Jeremiah cried to the people, Break up your fellow ground, and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your heart, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn that none can quench it because of the evil of your doings. And when Jeremiah wished to reproach them because they had no heart for the word of God, he said, To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ear is uncircumcised and they cannot hearken. Behold, the word of the Lord is unto them a reproach. They have no delight in it. Ezekiel also speaks of evil, of polluted deeds, as being the actions of uncircumcised hearts. In telling of the glory of the Lord that is to fill the house, he reminds them of their past sins. Ye have brought into my sanctuary strangers, uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh, to be in my sanctuary, to pollute it, even my house, when ye offer my bread, and they have broken my covenant because of all your abominations. But I need not do all your concordance work for you. Look these passages up in the scripture. Suffice it to say that the word circumcise is more a New Testament word than an Old Testament one. For while the verb and the noun together in all forms 
are found 32 times in the Hebrew Testament. They are to be found 55 times in the Greek of the New Testament. On the eighth day of his life on earth, our Lord Jesus Christ as a baby was taken to the temple and circumcised. He who was the eternal son sent from the father was also made under the law that he might redeem them that were under the law. And for this cause, he permitted that a knife should touch him and that thus early he should know the shedding of blood. His heart, thank God, was the heart of holiness and needed no circumcising. It was impossible that our Lord Jesus should have sinned. His circumcision was his first suffering for us. Oh, it was not, of course, the redemptive suffering for sin, which was accomplished alone upon the cross. But read again the so important verse from Colossians, a parallel passage which you have rarely heard used as a text for a sermon, but which is the key to a great section of biblical teaching on holiness. In Christ also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. We read in Colossians 2.11. Now it is the baptism of the Holy Spirit that places us in the circumcision of Christ. And it is the circumcision of Christ which puts off the body of the sins of the flesh. This is the metaphorical way of stating that we have a nature of sin that must be dealt with by the knife. God wishes us to deal categorically with sin. Too many Christians are like the small boy who thought it would be too cruel to cut his dog's tail off all at once. So he decided that he would cut it off one inch at a time. God never speaks in the word concerning any process of slow starvation of the sins of the flesh. They are to go under the knife. We are to come to the place in our Christian experience where we determine that we shall be given over to Christ for a life of holiness. That determination involves a surgical intervention. Your heart must be circumcised. The flesh must be cut back. The thing must be dealt with as a whole and not piecemeal. The reason for this is the nature of the cancerous tissue of the sin of the flesh. Sin will spread with a horrible metastasis unless we allow the Holy Spirit to use the knife. Whenever there is the first symptom of an outbreak of the flesh, our action must be amputation. Evil cannot be dealt with in any other way. I remember hearing as a boy a blackboard talk on the subject of bad habits. The speaker wrote the word habit, H-A-B-I-T, in large block letters and then began his talk. After a while, he erased the letter H, and lo, we saw that there was still a bit left. And when the A was rubbed out, the bit was still there. Off went the B, but there it was. Finally, he erased the T, and we were confronted with I. Now, if we had started there in the first place, the word would have had little meaning. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, of which our text speaks, does not include the eradication of the old nature of sin in the days of our present experience, but it does include the circumcision of the heart and the cutting away of the body of the sins of the flesh. We must learn once for all that our attitude towards sin within must be a ruthless one. We must give it no quarter. We must make no provision for it. We may by nature draw back from the knife, but when we go to him for the surgery, 
we will find that it is the pathway to cleanness and fertility. The unsaved world, of course, will think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, as Peter says. And this we can readily understand. Our greatest astonishment, perhaps, will come when we learn that there are multitudes of the uncircumcised in heart who profess to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, but who want nothing to do with that separation from the sins of the flesh which necessitates the knife. There may be some such that are truly saved, but there shall be a low place in heaven forever. Saved, yet so as by fire, we read in 1 Corinthians 3.15, with all their works burned away. These are called carnal, fleshly, by the Holy Spirit. If you would be joined to the Lord and in the center of his will, you must learn that the baptism of the Holy Spirit includes our identification with Jesus Christ in his circumcision. The next step in the chronological sequence of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, into each phase of which we are baptized by the Holy Spirit in a complete and perfect identification, is that he increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Into this increase of our Lord, we too are placed by the Holy Spirit. This is a part of the meaning of our text, that we are baptized into Christ. How does it come about that the path of the just is as the shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day? How is it that he which hath begun a good work in you will keep on perfecting it until the day of Jesus Christ? It is because we are identified by the Holy Spirit into the increase of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can we not say, blessed increase? First of all, it is an increase in wisdom. At times it's difficult for us to see just where the division of the work of the Father, the work of the Son, and the work of the Holy Spirit in our behalf takes place. There is a great overlapping in what the three persons of the Godhead do for us. This is quite understandable, for each one of the three works in perfect harmony with the other two. It is Christ who is made unto us wisdom, we read in 1 Corinthians 1.30. It is God the Father who makes Christ wisdom unto us. And it is by the Spirit that the word of wisdom is given, we read in 1 Corinthians 12.8. But though all three members of the Godhead are involved in the gift, it is ever the Holy Spirit who is the agent of the Trinity at work in our being, conforming us to Christ. It is on the basis of our identification with Christ by the Holy Spirit that we may grow into our Savior's earthly increase in wisdom. To be identified into the wisdom of Christ means that the believer is able to think clearly on spiritual matters. The believer has the beginning of a spiritual discernment which enables him to avoid the common pitfalls of false theology. He no longer thinks even for a moment that human merit can have a part in salvation. He knows that the individual believer must turn away from any confidence or trust in his own works, be they few or many. He knows that salvation is not the making up of the deficiency between what we've accomplished ourselves and the righteousness of God, but the turning away from, yes, the cursing of his own righteousness in order to receive the righteousness of God on divine principles from the cross of our Savior. This wisdom is the wisdom that comes from above and that is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy, as described by James. 
It is when we realize that Christ has been made wisdom unto us that we can begin to bring every thought into captivity unto him. It is then that we can begin to look at all of the wisdom of the world through the lens of the word of God and can begin to see all things in the divine light. We are baptized of the Holy Spirit into the increase of the wisdom of Christ. Secondly, we are baptized into Christ's increase in stature. With the Lord Jesus, it was an increase in bodily stature. With us, it's an increase in spiritual stature. There's a beautiful passage in the word of God which tells us where our Lord Jesus grew up. Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 53, 2, He, Christ, shall grow up before him, the Father, as a tender plant. What a garden that was. Jesus grew up in the presence of the Father. Oh, it may indeed have been hidden from men, but it was not hidden from the Father. Nor are we. Some may think that their lonely lives in some isolated part of the world are quite unknown, but they are known to him. In the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we are identified into the Lord's increase in stature. Daily, the Holy Spirit is at work accomplishing this task in us. The whole of God's organization of the invisible church, we read in Ephesians 4, is for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. God desires maturity in the believer. He has provided that maturity for us in the work of the Holy Spirit, identifying us into the increase of Christ. We have a phrase that we sometimes use for people who are not quite as dignified as they should be. We say to them, why don't you grow up? Or why don't you act your age? And God says that to us in the Bible. We read in Ephesians 4 that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. It is not normal that a Christian should be ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Grow up into Christ. Only then can you stand firm and having done all, stand. I'm reminded of a very old sermon illustration, somewhat hackneyed by now, perhaps, but which may serve its purpose with a younger generation which has not heard it. The story is told of a man who came in the early days of travel in rural America to the broad stream of the Mississippi in midwinter. He desired to cross, but he saw that a sheet of ice covered the river. Very timidly, he stepped out on the ice, took a few steps from the shore. He thought he heard the ice cracking, and in order to distribute his weight more, he got down on all fours and painfully began to inch his way across the river. After half an hour of this, when he was a quarter of a mile from the shore, he heard sleigh bells. With great caution, he brought himself to a half-upright position and saw, a few hundred yards downstream, a neighboring farmer with a four-horse team shod for travel on the ice, pulling a great wagon load of hay, which the farmer was taking to his barn. The timid traveler walked out after that with more confidence. Oh, may many of us walk with ever firmer step as we realize the maturity of stature into which the Holy Spirit has identified us 
has baptized us in our identification with Christ. You are to take certain truths for granted and never go back to question them. We are commanded in Hebrews 6 to leave the principles, the ABCs of the doctrine of Christ, and to go on to perfection. We are not to lay again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. The Christian who is alive in Christ may know, know, know of a surety that he is alive because he has been made alive by the Holy Spirit. That's the end of the matter. We can say without presumption that we are just as sure that we're going to be in heaven as we are sure that Jesus, the Son of God, will be there. Is it presumptuous to believe God or to doubt God? Boasting is excluded. Christ did it all. Accept that fact and grow up. You are baptized into that stature of maturity which allows you to know that you're saved once for all and forever. And in the same passage, Hebrews 6, 1, he tells us to stop arguing about ordinances and whether there is life after death and whether there's an eternal judgment. He has spoken. The revelation is clear. Just believe it and stop arguing. There is eternal life and there is eternal condemnation. You have believed in Christ? Well, then know that you have eternal life and begin to grow up into the stature of his maturity. Again, we see that Christ's increase was in favor with God. Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God. And into this increase, we are baptized by the Holy Spirit. The Lord loves us more today than he loved us yesterday. How could it be otherwise? Is he not incessantly transforming us into the image of his son? In Christ are all the father's delights. Therefore, as we become more like Christ, the father must delight in us more and more. It is, of course, not a delight in anything that we are in ourselves, but it is a delight in what we are becoming in Christ. Some time ago, I heard my sons preaching in an open air meeting. As they exalted the Lord Jesus Christ, I knew that I had more delight in them than I had ever had before, though I had loved them even before they were born. But it is thus that we are identified into the increase of the Lord Jesus Christ in favor with God. And as he sees us grow, his heart joys in that growth. Finally, we see that Christ's increase was in favor of man. He increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Now, it should go without saying that Christ did not increase in favor with the scribes and the Pharisees. This refers, obviously, to redeemed men. With all the needy multitude, he increased in favor. They knew that God was among them. The humble fishermen, the cleansed lepers, the Magdalene, the family at Bethany. How Jesus increased in their favor. At first, they saw him as a man, then as a prophet, then as a miracle worker, then as the Messiah the son of the living God. They were willing to break their boxes of ointment of spikenard, very precious, and pour every drop upon the feet of Jesus Christ. This did not come the first day of their experience, but as time went on. It is into this increase that we are baptized by the Holy Spirit. Some years ago in England, I attended a memorial service for the late W.H. Aldous. As a young man, he was spoken of as a keen Christian. Then he entered the China Inland Mission and through the years received the increasing trust and confidence of his fellow workers. He went to Keswick as an occasional speaker. In due course, he became a member of the council, then a trustee. Finally, he became the head of the China Inland Mission and the chairman of the trustees of Keswick and of the convention and president of the London Bible College. 
What does all this mean? It means that he was baptized of the Holy Spirit into the increase of Christ in favor of fellow believers. Now, for some Christians, it may be merely that they are held in the solid respect of leaders without any thought that they themselves are gifted for leadership. But it will be an increase in favor with men. I remember seeing a man who bore a title standing after a prayer meeting with his arm around the shoulders of a gardener. Afterward, he said to me, splendid chap that, keen Christian with a real knowledge of the word of God. You see, the gardener had by the Holy Spirit the increase of Christ in favor with men. And that is no small thing. And into that increase, we are baptized by the Holy Spirit. And the Lord willing, in our next study, we shall go on to see that we are baptized into Christ's baptism and ministry. Our God and Father, bless thy truth to each heart and use it to thine honor and glory. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we ask it. Amen. We must seek to be given over to Christ for a life of holiness. This involves a surgical intervention of the circumcision of the heart and the cutting away of sins of the flesh. We hope you have benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse entitled Circumcision and Growth. You can listen to additional Bible teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse via the Internet by visiting the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals website at alliancenet.org. An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling us toll-free, 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled, Circumcision and Growth, or simply request message number R6-7. We would also like to make available to you a free copy of our booklet entitled, Your Right to Heaven. Many people believe they have a right to go to heaven based on their good works or moral character. But the Bible teaches us that we are all sinners and deserve eternal condemnation. This free booklet sets forth the gospel declaration that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and rose again to give eternal life to all who trust in Him. You do have a right to heaven based on the person of Jesus Christ and His finished work of salvation. Ask for your free copy of Your Right to Heaven when you call or write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible comes to you through the generous gifts of our listeners. If you have benefited from the broadcast and would like it to continue, please prayerfully consider a donation to help us keep this ministry on the air. For more information or to make a contribution to support and further our work, please contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. Call toll-free 1-800-488-1888 or visit us online at alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free updated resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, daily devotionals, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians, including Donald Gray Barnhouse, James Montgomery Boyce, Michael Horton, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. Join us again next time for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.